Welcome to the Women's Health Podcast. I'm Marika Hart from Herosphere. And I'm Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. Together we interview leading authorities, answer questions, and share our thoughts to provide the general public with the best quality information we can find on all aspects of women's health. Please remember the materials and content on this podcast are intended as general information and for entertainment purposes only. They are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Now it's time to get cracking with the episode, so whether you're out walking your dog, driving the kids to school, or just sitting back enjoying a glass of wine, we hope you enjoy the show. Everybody, welcome back to the Women's Health Podcast, and it's uh, a great, it's a beautiful day today, and it's going to be a great episode here. We're talking S&C and female athletes and all the stuff that we all love. Um, and of course, joining me is Marika, my wonderful co-host, the wiser one. How are you going, Marika? I'm great. It's also a beautiful day in Perth. Uh, I have been sitting outside having my breakfast in the sunshine and it's just glorious. So yeah, it's a, it's a lovely start to the day. And we are so excited because we have Claire Minahan, who is, are you in Queensland, aren't you, Claire? Is that right? Absolutely, on the beautiful Gold Coast. I'm guessing you're having a lovely start to the day too with in the sun. Uh, absolutely, we've got some impending rain on, on the way, which we're all looking forward to, but um, I'm pretty sure there's still some blue sky out there. Fantastic. Um, the reason why we've asked Claire on the podcast, as Anthony said, she is very knowledgeable when it comes to um, exercise physiology, sports science, strength and conditioning, um, really passionate about women's fitness and women in sport, which obviously we are, and we know a lot of our listeners are as well. So just to give you a little bit of a bio, so um, Claire has a PhD and she is an associate professor at Griffin University in Queensland. She has led the sports science team since 2002. Um, her interests are in the advancement of human performance with a key focus on the determinants of performance in female athletes. Yay. Um, she has documented unique responses to exercise in female athletes, including muscle damage, thermoregulation and immune function. And Claire is a founding member of the Australian Institute of Sports, Female Performance and Health Initiative. Wow. Fantastic bio. <laughs> uh, I can see Anthony's like smiling and nodding like, oh, I could just pick this lady's brain for hours. Um, Claire, why don't we just start with just telling us a little bit about how you came to be in this role and you know, what makes you so passionate about women in sport? Thanks for the introduction. Um, how did I become uh, passionate about women in sport? I, I am a woman and I do play sport um, and I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, it definitely stems from um, my dad who encouraged me to play every sport um, under the sun and never... Um, compared me to boys. Uh, he always wondered why I couldn't run as fast as them um, or tried to work out ways how I could start beating anyone and everyone and never um, uh, really depicted me as, as, as female. Um, and I really think now, you know, thinking back, that gave me um, a real passion to um, individualise people in sport how do we optimize performance in individuals um, and that means um, that you have to take into consideration their unique physiology um, and certainly women have unique physiology as compared to men um, and we can use that to optimize performance um, and we can use that to um, optimize training adaptations and also health and things like that so it, it, look it's been a long um, a long process um, and I'm incredibly excited with the attention that it's getting now um, in science um, and in the media and, and profiling female athletes and things like that. Um, but we've got a long way to go. We've got a long way to go in terms of the quality of science that's coming out and the quantity of science. Um, and also, um, you know, just in general public about their perceptions of female athletes. Yeah, it's... Um... It is exciting to see it. And, uh, you know, I do uh, like to encourage people to look into the research on, on all of this stuff. Um, there's so much that I want to talk about. Uh, really, um, I love the fact that it's, it's okay to acknowledge that there are unique physiology considerations for female athletes. 
And I also loved um, how you said that your dad encouraged you to compete and all that sort of stuff. I've, I've shared the story before that, um, you know, I know what boys are like and, you know, even just the, the jab of you throw like a girl just annoyed me. And, and I said, and I taught my daughter as soon as she, as soon as she could, that I want you to be able to throw and hit somebody hard with a ball if they ever said that you throw like a girl. <laughs> so I've got this great photo of her throwing an American football, perfect tight spiral over 20 meters. You know, she does javelin, she can throw, the girl can throw. And she said to me not that long ago, she said, dad, you did a great job with teaching me how to throw, but I can't kick. She can't kick a ball because it's <laughs> didn't know how to kick a ball. I thought how to throw. <laughs> Uh, so yes, I really love that sort of stuff. Um, in terms of what you've seen over the years, um, can you give us some of the ideas of what some of the, the differences in training women and, and getting the best out of them, you know, through the Institute, um, work, uh, high performance work, what are some of the things that people have to think about and consider when training female athletes? Yeah, look, it's a good question. And, and there's a lot of literature that compares the physical and physiological characteristics uh, between men and women. Um, and, it, and it begins with those physical characteristics that um, women are shorter and um, they don't weigh as much and they don't have as much muscle mass. Um, and the physiology is a little different as well. Um, and we think that most of these differences uh, relate to hormonal profile. So not all differences between men and women, but the majority of differences that occur in the physical and physiological characteristics between men and women are probably due to the hormonal profile. And we can get to that a little bit later in the podcast. Um, but uh, th there are some very clear similarities between men and women as well. And so it's not useful to throw everything in the bin. Um, a muscle cell um, is a muscle cell and it will adapt um, and it will respond to exercise and training very similarly, depending on whether it's in a, in a male or a female. So we can't throw what we know about basic physiology and science in the bin just because it was um, performed on men. So there are lots of similarities, absolutely. Um, but as you say, there are some differences and we're just now starting to understand those differences. And not only how um, the physiology might be unique in women, but how women might move differently to men, how they might be at risk of different injuries at different rates compared to men as well. So it's about um, trying to prevent injury in women. It's about trying to optimise training adaptations and also to predict um, performance as well and, and also recovery. So um, some basic things that are different between men and women that besides sort of the physical obvious attributes of men and women um, is the way they recover from high intensity exercise, both in terms of muscle damage as well as returning to, uh, you know, 100% maximum performance is different in men and women. Thermoregulation is different in men and women. So how men and women respond to exercise in the heat is different. Um, and, and, and things like um, how they control their core body temperature is slightly different as well. Um, so yeah, there, there, are, there are some subtle differences between men and women and, and that will then determine um, how we train men and women and how we optimize their performance. Yeah. And you know, obviously I wanna know uh, what, what all of those things are. That, that you've seen. Um, things that are stuck in my brain from wherever are things like pound for pound. I'm fairly sure that there was somewhere that said pound for pound that, that women are just as strong, if not a little bit stronger, or the endurance is a little bit better in women uh, compared to power. So the output and expression of force um, you mentioned the biomechanical differences, which may or may not, like the question I have on, on biomechanical differences is like, let's just say Q angle and ACL, for example, is that a lack of specific strength or is that purely physics and biomechanics? Um, and you've got about 15 questions in one here. <laughs> 
first. Let's I'm following. <laughs> Should we start with the, you know, you mentioned the muscle damage and returning to 100% max performance. What is the difference there? So are women slower to return to um, that max or we, are we faster? Yeah, we're, we're actually faster. This is, this is a really exciting area. Um, so, so there's two things working here. So one is um, returning to maximal strength, for instance. So if we perform a, a series of repetitions and sets of a particular resistance exercise, um, you know, we can get back to maximal performance within hours, within a short period of time, whereas it might take men performing the same relative load, um, you know, up to two days to return to maximal performance. So in terms of what that means for training prescriptions, it means that you can um, prescribe uh, women potentially more frequent training um, as compared to men because they're able to respond and recover back to 100% um, much quicker than men. Um, and in terms of muscle damage, um, at the same relative load, and it's usually a load that's an unaccustomed exercise or a load that's applied eccentrically, um, men tend to get more muscle damage, so delayed onset muscle soreness um, that results in the leakage of creatine kinase and um, uh, fatty acid binding proteins and things like that out of the muscle and their measures of actual damage to the muscle. Um, men tend to get more muscle damage at the same relative intensity as compared to women. Um, but interestingly, that will depend on whether that female is taking hormonal contraception or not. And I can, I can get to that if we, um, uh, if we look at some differences between women on and off um, hormonal contraception. But yeah, that's definitely an exciting area of research um, to show that women recover from the same relative uh, work compared to men. Oh, that's so interesting. I'm just reminded of the fact my husband did a, um, a uh, off-road run on the weekend, really hardcore, got a bit competitive. He doesn't usually run off-road, did, I don't know, 14K or something, came back, has been absolutely smashed for four <laughs> days. And he's got a Garmin and it said something like 50 hours recovery time. Oh. And everyone was like, that's a really long time. It shouldn't actually take that long. <laughs> And he, he's still recovering. So anyway, um, total side note. But you just on that, the endurance, the endurance side of things, um, what, it, what are the differences? Because I, I think I find it fascinating that we see women in their, you know, like my age, in their 40s, who are out running marathons and competing at high levels. And what is it about women that we seem to be able to compete in endurance for, for longer uh, and later in our lives? Um, yeah, I'm just really interested in the differences between men and women in, in that, in the sort of VO2 um, max kind of, you know, realm. Yeah, there's probably a few contributing factors to that, but one that is um, most commonly used to explain this phenomenon that um, women do well at ultra endurance events, for instance, um, is that estrogen or the, the, um, um, the, circulating estrogen um, that women are exposed to as compared to men allows us to spare uh, carbohydrates or use or oxidize fat a little at a higher rate as compared to men. Um, and so that allows us to continue exercising for a much longer period of time because we're predominantly using fat rather than carbohydrate, which can be, um, which can be used uh, used up a lot more quickly. We have a much greater uh, amount of fats to use. So if we can start to use fats rather than carbohydrate, perhaps we can go longer. So that's typically the reason that's given um, why women can go longer in these ultra endurance events and compete with the men actually. Um, I think there's been a recent example of a, of a woman winning an ultra endurance event that was um, both men and women. Events that are about two hours long, so you're looking at your marathon, men are still um, superior in terms of their performance. One, because they can replenish some of that carbohydrate during the event. Um, and it's a, an event that's short enough that they would have enough um, 
storage of, of glycogen um, to fuel that event as well. So um, it's not until you sort of get past your three hours where you really have to depend on fats to fuel um, the exercise. And that's where women might get the advantage because estrogen helps them oxidize fat. Yeah, that's, um, that's really interesting because, you know, you, you, I've often seen in these endurance events, there's an event that I, that I help run where we spend 24 hours just putting them through lots of different sports. Um, and it's interesting to see the start and then the finish and, and just to see, and we do it to just basically exhaust people, but it's interesting to see how people cope and, um, you know, obviously different people have different uh, preferences for power versus endurance um, physiologically, but um, it is interesting. Lots and lots and lots of the females just can just keep chugging through and like leaving the guys for like oh, all over the ground. <laughs> it's quite interesting. Um, all right. In terms of... Um, some of those hormonal things, the circulating estrogen thing is interesting um, in terms of the, um, I suppose, the menstrual cycle as well. Uh, and you mentioned the contraceptive pill and how that can affect what sort of uh, what sort of things would we be seeing? How does that look to the person who is training and for their coach or for their trainer or for their health professional? Yeah, it's a really big question. Uh, and the simple answer is we don't have enough scientific evidence to be able to prescribe uh, training or exercise around menstrual cycle or hormonal contraception at this stage or, or the, the quality of the, the science isn't um, available as yet. But there are some really interesting findings that we're starting to pay attention to. So if I backtrack a little bit, the menstrual cycle, when it is normal, um, which isn't in a in a huge percentage of women, I must add, um, you know, sort of up to twenty five percent of women have some kind of menstrual dysfunction. Um, but in a normal menstrual cycle, you sort of have this repeating pattern of fluctuating hormones, and and the ones we're mostly interested in, of course, are estrogen and progesterone. And they, uh, you know, there's different profiles of estrogen and pro progesterone across the menstrual cycle. So the menstrual cycle being about 28 days, but is considered normal anywhere between 21 and 35 days. Um, and during this time, you have at the start of your menstrual cycle, which we call the follicular phase, low levels of circulating estrogen and progesterone, um, and then ovulation, which occurs around day 14, where progesterone remains low and estrogen is peaking. And then the luteal phase, where you have elevated estrogen and progesterone. So three really distinct phases of this menstrual cycle, which we're starting to investigate whether this um, will change your response to exercise or change the way you adapt to exercise or change the way you recover from exercise. There's a fantastic review paper um, from Kirsty Elliott Sales Lab um, that has examined all the literature um, regarding menstrual cycle and performance. Um, and the overwhelming conclusion is um, we really can't give clear advice on whether our menstrual cycle does affect um, performance. There's some trivial um, information out there. What I might say is that athletes perceive their ability to perform in the follicular phase, that is when you have your period, um, to be lower than other phases of the menstrual cycle. Now, this is literally a perception from our elite athletes. They perceive that they don't perform as well when they have their period. There is very little evidence in the literature that this is a physiological mechanism. Um, and certainly uh, there are numerous examples of women um, breaking world records when they have their period. So there's absolutely no reason why we can't train as hard and perform as well at any stage during the menstrual cycle. Um, there are three or four papers out now, three of which indicate that if you perform resistance exercise, that you may be better off um, 
periodizing your resistance program so that a lot of your volume and load occurs in the first couple of weeks of your menstrual cycle, that is the follicular phase of your menstrual cycle. And then if you were to have a recovery week, as many people do over a four week period, that you would prescribe that in the luteal phase. And that this would end up um, giving you a greater cross-sectional area um, and perhaps greater strength over time. So this is an incredibly interesting um, area of research at the moment. So there, there are some sort of basic things across the menstrual cycle and there are numerous um, areas of performance that we could talk about. The, the two points to make are, it's incredibly individualized. And that's why athletes and women should start tracking their menstrual cycle and overlaying how they think they're performing. Um, uh, so it's incredibly individualized. We don't have enough high quality evidence um, to suggest um, too much about um, how menstrual cycle affects performance adaptation and recovery. Um, so then, then there's hormonal contraception. Uh, up to 80% of women at some stage during their reproductive years will take hormonal contraception. So it's absolutely relevant for most people um, to discuss how hormonal contraception might affect your response to exercise, your adaptation to training, um, your performance and your recovery. If we talk about elite athletes, um, we're talking about 50% of elite athletes being on some form of hormonal contraception. And just for um, just to take it one step back, there are quite a few ways um, that you can administer hormonal contraception. And hormonal contraception being that administration of synthetic estrogen and progesterone, which then suppresses your body's natural production of estrogen and progesterone. So we're suppressing endogenous estrogen, and we are delivering synthetic estrogen and progesterone. And so the most common hormonal contraception is a combined oral contraceptive pill, um, and it's delivered orally. Um, and the most common one of those is a, what we call a monophasic pill. So it delivers the same amount of synthetic estrogen and progesterone right across the menstrual cycle, or at least for 21 days. And then at which time um, a woman would take a break for seven days, take a placebo pill or, or not take a pill at all for seven days. And they have a withdrawal bleed during that time. The most interesting um, differences I've found over the last several years is the differences between women who take hormonal contraception and those that don't, rather than differences across the menstrual cycle per se. Um, our particular lab has looked at differences in um, muscle damage, in thermoregulation, in oxidative stress uh, and immune function, um, just to name a few over the last few years. So uh, if you like, I can go into a little bit of detail there, but I know I've been chatting for a while. So um, we can either redirect the conversation or you can ask me some specifics about that. Uh, no, we, no, that's super fascinating. I think because like you said, you know, 50% of elite athletes are on a um, OCP and then 80% of the general public will be on it at some point. I think this is highly relevant. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love you to dive into that a little bit more if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, the, the way I look at sort of exercise is to look at, um, of course, the way you respond acutely to exercise, the way you adapt to training, um, how do we optimise performance, and then how do we recover. So I, I, I can sort of pigeonhole all our findings into one of those four areas. Um, and a lot of what we've looked at is, uh, and if we're just talking about performance, and I think before I go on, it's um, important to mention that, um, you know, a number of women don't have a normal menstrual cycle. Um, and, you know, it's important to establish a healthy menstrual cycle um, before considering manipulating it with hormonal contraception. Um, and so um, it's really important to sort of establish, establish that. But as you say, 50% um, of athletes, for whatever reason, are on hormonal contraception. So it is relevant. So Sorry, we look at muscle it's damage. It's Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Before you go on to this, um, a lot of my clients are on the marina. Is, is your research just on the oral contraceptive pill or is it also relevant for those who um, have an IUD? Or... Yeah, the, the marina is becoming um, a lot more popular, um, particularly in athletes, but still 
nowhere near as popular as a oral contraceptive pill. So the research that we've conducted is absolutely being on oral contraceptive pills, simply because of the prevalence of oral contraceptive pills in, in athletes. And whether or not that's um, a considered decision by the athletes or whether it's one purely directed by their general practitioner, we, we don't know yet. Um, we think it's because they go on uh, an oral contraceptive pill, um, probably to, um, for contraceptive reasons, of course, um, to control for some dysfunction symptoms such as pain, um, cramping, fatigue, headaches, those types of things, and or to manipulate their cycle. Um, the oral contraceptive pill is um, very malleable. It's very, um, you know, acute. So someone can come on and off it very easily. A Mirena is a little more difficult. It's longer term. Um, it requires, um, you know, an implantation um, via a doctor, etc. So it's still not as popular, um, but it is becoming more popular. And certainly I can see the research moving into um, examining the differences um, among pills as well as um, those on hormonal contraception versus naturally cycling. Yeah. Oh, sorry. And then you were going to talk about the, um, the changes then with the adaptations and response to exercise and how to optimize performance yeah. around yeah, that. Yeah, sure. For those yeah, sure. So, so um, there are at least 35 different um, hormonal contraceptive pills in Australia alone, and they have different formulations. And so, um, you know, when we discuss if there are differences in responses to exercise and adaptations, etc., um, we have to be really clear about what hormonal contraception we're talking about, and then go further than that and say what formulation of oral contraceptive pill are we talking about? Um, so there are four generations of pills now. Um, the first generation of pill we don't use very much, but certainly the most popular um, oral contraceptive pill that is still used today is a second generation pill. Um, and then there's been third and fourth generation pills beyond that as well. So we have to be very clear about the generation of pill because that will tell us something about what type of progestin um, is being used in that pill. And that will have um, a very different effect on physiology. So that's really important as well. So what we've looked at to get into a little bit of detail, um, one of the first things we looked at was muscle damage. Um, and we've, we've conducted a couple of studies in this and there's um, been several studies over many years looking at uh, muscle damage between men and women and across the menstrual cycle. And we decided to look at it um, in women on and off oral contraceptive pill. So we conducted a series of exercises that caused muscle damage, severe muscle damage in women actually. Um, it was eccentric um, knee flexion exercise, over 200 repetitions um, and caused severe muscle damage and pain in the quadriceps of these women and measured um, maximal strength among other things. Uh, before and after the exercise, as well as um, every 24 hours after that for 96 hours. What we found was um, the status quo, men had a lot more pain, they had a lot more uh, muscle damage as defined by um, circulating concentrations of creatine kinase and fatty acid binding protein and my uh, and I can't quite remember the third one we measured. Um, but what we did find is that women who were taking hormonal contraception, while didn't have the same level of muscle damage as the men, certainly had a significant, significantly higher amount of muscle damage compared to the naturally cycling women. So they fell somewhere in the middle between men and naturally cycling women, suggesting that if you are on a hormonal contraception and you are exposed to unaccustomed exercise or eccentric exercise causing muscle damage, you will have a higher amount of muscle damage. Now, that's one thing, but then the next thing is to say, well, how long did it take them to recover back to be able to produce 100% force? And it took the women who were on hormonal contraception 
a lot longer over the next few days to get back to 100% force as compared to the naturally cycling women. So this has implications for tournament style play, for athletes who are exercising frequently. We, we can't always see this as a bad thing though, um, because we know that muscle damage is a signal um, for, uh, for muscle growth, for um, increases in strength. So it may have implications for adaptation. So as I said before, there's that, that response to exercise that may appear uh, detrimental if you're on hormonal contraception, you get more muscle damage compared to women who are naturally cycling. But what are the implications for long-term training adaptation? That endogenous estrogen appears to be protective, but is it so protective that we're not getting the same um, adaptive response? And uh, I think it's a watch this space because there'll be some nice research coming out of Denmark very soon that may indeed indicate that women on hormonal contraception um, show greater increases in cross-sectional area and strength over a period of, of uh, resistance training. Um, one thing to note is many of these studies are very short term. Many of these studies are performed on uh, recreationally active individuals and not elite athletes. So we have to be very careful how we, we um, implement some of this work. So that's the muscle damage piece. We've looked at some thermoregulation. We know that your core body temperature is elevated by almost half a degree um, if you are on some form of hormonal contraception um, as compared to naturally cycling women. So you might think if you're exercising in the heat um, and your core body temperature is already elevated to almost half a degree hotter, that that may um, result in some premature fatigue um, across a period of time. Now, again, a lot of these studies haven't been performed in elite athletes, so we're not sure if it has a performance outcome, but certainly um, physiologically and mechanistically, we see that when exercising in the heat, um, women on hormonal contraception have a greater skin blood flow as compared to naturally cycling women. They're trying to deal with this elevated core body temperature. And what that means is that they're sending a greater percentage of their cardiac output to the skin to try and cool. Um, and that means less is available to go to the working muscles. So physiologically, it makes sense. Mechanistically, it makes sense. Whether or not it results in premature fatigue in elite athletes, we're not 100% sure yet, but certainly um, there are some differences in the way women who are on hormonal contraception thermoregulate as compared to those who are naturally cycling. Um, so there's some interesting results coming out there as well. In terms of immune function, um, we've looked at, uh, we just recently published a paper examining the basal uh, immune function of our most elite athletes. And they were the women who were um, off, to to oh, off to Rio, I'm sorry, Rio, uh, the Rio Olympics. Um, and we looked at their basal immune function and found that C-reactive protein was elevated in, um, in women on hormonal contraception. Now, again, what are the implications of this? There are some um, relationships to cardiovascular health and long-term health implications. Um, but what we're interested to follow on with is to see, is that protective against upper respiratory tract infections? So when you actually go to some of these events, uh, I know at the London Olympics, half of all British athletes got an upper respiratory tract infection during the Olympics because there's so many people in confined spaces. Women on hormonal contraception have this elevated sort of basal immune function activity, if you like. Is that protective um, or does it mean that their body is in increased stress for some reason um, and then they're more likely to get an upper respiratory tract infection? We don't know the answer to that, but we're certainly working in that space. Um, to see what that might mean. And the differences, are they physiologically relevant? Um, they're certainly statistically different, but are they physiologically relevant? Um, and, and that sort of follows on to the work that um, uh, my PhD uh, student, Carly Quinn, is working on, um, looking at oxidative stress in women on hormonal contraception. And again, sort of this elevated basal increase in oxidative stress 
which may have implications for adaptation um, and, and long-term health. And so we're examining whether, um, you know, there are changes across the menstrual cycle in oxidative stress, as well as differences between women on hormonal contraception and those who aren't. So that's our research piece in a nutshell. Um, and there's a lot going um, on around the world. Sort of the most interesting uh, piece that we see in the, in, um, in the media a lot is around ACL injuries. Um, because the, the chances of getting an ACL injury is threefold in, in girls playing sport as compared to boys. Um, and a lot of the time that um, is blamed on, on the menstrual cycle. Um, it's one of the, one of the reasons um, or that may explain uh, sort of this increase in incidence in, in girls getting ACL injury. And I can talk a, a little bit around that if you like. Yes, please. Keep going. <laughs> Yeah, so it's one of the questions that we had, Claire, because, you know, I know there's been some research looking at, yeah, the different times of the menstrual cycle where the women are more at risk um, in that sort of follicular phase. And then the um, looking at the, the neuromuscular differences between men and women, so landing strategies and things like that, which seemed whether or not they're increasing risk. Because we're seeing in the um, AFLW, for those that are international, the, um, the Australian Football League has a has a high level women's um, competition now, which is brilliant. Like it's so fantastic to watch, but we're seeing, a, you know, two ACL injuries a week through the season. Um, and that's, that's it season, season gone um, for, for these women. So I think it's definitely an, an area of, of, of interest definitely here in Australia as to why are we having so many of these injuries and what can we do to maybe prevent some of those. Yeah, it's, it's a huge question, isn't it? And uh, there's lots of different approaches, um, which is fantastic. It, it, it certainly has to, has to come from a lot of different um, approaches, I think, to, to finally find the answer. We know, as you mentioned, that the landing strategies of um, young boys and girls are the same, but as soon as they go through maturation, the landing strategies of girls tends to change, whereas boys don't, doesn't really. Um, and so it's, got to be a combination between biomechanics and force. Um, and the question is, um, you know, is it the biomechanics or it has to be the biomechanics that, or that is causing these, these injuries, but why um, this change in landing strategy or change of direction strategy as compared to boys? Now, one of the reasons um, may simply be a lack of preparation um, but the more time goes on, the more unlikely that's the case because they are exposed now to training um, and they've been more exposed to the game itself. Um, but we're not seeing a reduction in ACL. One could be um, participation, although we know participation rates across sport uh, don't change that much in girls or haven't changed that much in girls across time, yet ACL injuries is increasing. What we are seeing is potentially a change in the sports that girls are playing, so that um, we're getting an increase um, of girls playing collision sports and sports that require this, these landings and change of direction. So they're starting to play rugby league, they're starting to play AFL. Um, so they're moving from other sports into these collision sports and change of direction sports. So that could be one reason why we're seeing this increase in ACL in girls as compared to boys. And boys actually are having a reduction in participation in some of these sports. So I would suggest it could be just um, sort of a matter of figures. Um, but, um, you know, there is some suggestion that the hormonal profile may increase risk. Um, and we know that estrogen mechanistically um, can increase joint laxity and it may increase muscle force. So if you put those two things together, that becomes a really nice um, environment for an injury. Increased force and increased joint laxity. There's been several studies that have examined injury rate over the menstrual cycle. There haven't been a lot of high quality studies and longitudinal studies, of course, um, but there have been a couple and there is some emerging evidence to suggest that 
um, during the phase of the menstrual cycle when estrogen is high and progesterone remains low, which is moving into ovulation. So through the second phase of the follicular phase. So the first half of the menstrual cycle, but the second week of the follicular phase. So just after um, menses or having your period in that second week where estrogen is climbing up to ovulation, progesterone remains low, the, the prevalence of ACL injury may be slightly higher. Now, the danger with this kind of information is that coaches and athletes decide that they shouldn't be competing or shouldn't be training as hard during that, that period. And um, that's not the situation we want to get into. We want to get into a situation where we're able to give them strategies to help prevent ACL injury. We know that it is because of an increase in force when the biomechanics aren't quite right. So how do we try to, how do we, um, encourage strategies that improve biomechanics during landing and change of direction. Um, you know, there's, there's been an enormous amount of work um, to look at landing. Um, and just most recently, um, actually out of Griffith University and a, and a student that's just completed her PhD, looking at landing strategy or, or change of direction strategies in girls right throughout maturation um, and showing that uh, the loading on the ACL is increased relatively um, when girls sort of are in the second phase of, of maturation. So something's going on. We don't know why they change their change of direction and landing strategies. It could simply what age is that, be... What's that, sorry? What age is that second part of maturation? Yes, it's more, rather than a chronological age, it's more sort of a tanner stage. So coming out of one, two, moving into sort of three, four, um, we're seeing quite a big difference. So when they're, when they're young, when girls and boys are about eight and nine, they have the same landing strategy. When you get up to about 12 and 13, they start to have different strategies. Now, when boys go through uh, maturation, they have a similar increase in muscle mass to their fat mass, if you like. So their muscle mass uh, matches their increase in weight. With girls, we have a accelerated increase in fat mass as compared to muscle mass. So now the increase in weight isn't supported by um, a similar increase in muscle mass. So it could be this mismatch between strength and weight that is contributing to the changes in landing and, and change of direction strategy in, in girls. Um, and that's something we need to work on for sure. And we need to start training girls early, very early. How do we teach them to land? How do we teach them to change direction safely um, so that they don't get into this habit and pattern um, of inferior biomechanics? And just to clarify on that, because obviously I have my own ideas on this stuff. Um, we're talking about the, the knee coming inside the foot often with landing. Um, you know, I, I teach a technique with change of direction of, you know, lining things up so that when you direct the force for the change of direction, that it goes through as little, you know, sagittal plane on the side type bends as possible. These are sorts of things that we're talking about, not sagittal plane, no, transverse plane, rotations, controlling for rotations, things like that. Is, is that what the research is indicating there? Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. So they have increased valgus, which is, yeah, your knee basically collapsing in. When you, when you watch someone who sustains an ACL injury, almost always they have a knee that, um, that, that will collapse in. Um, and so this is something we need to uh, train our young girls um, to, to prevent these injuries. Um, and the, the problem is if they if they continue with this type of movement strategy um, and increase their strength through training and playing games without changing their biomechanics, that may be a recipe for increasing ACL injury. Um, so we think that by putting them in the gym, we're preventing ACL injury. But if we don't change their biomechanics, we may actually be contributing to increasing their ACL injury because we're increasing their ability to produce force. So they're gonna run faster, um, they're gonna accelerate more quickly, um, and that just increases force. 
at the same time, we absolutely need to improve their biomechanics during landing and, and change of direction. So um, pleases me to hear that you've got some strategy around that and you're implementing it. Yeah, that's, you know, bias declaration. I have a course that teaches this stuff. Um, <laughs> um, but in terms, of, um, in terms of that course as well, just so that you know, I also train people to be strong in those positions and move into different variable positions because you do find yourself in collision sports in weird positions, you know, training for that, which is why it was interesting. I do just have a, a related and a slightly way off topic question. I just want to make sure I get it in before we run out of time. In the CrossFit world, which I do a lot of work with, um, I've asked coaches, many different coaches, what they think the difference between one female athlete is and a better one. And the most common response that I hear from them is that they think that their circulating testosterone level is like just their natural genetics is the first biggest step that they then begin to work from, from there as well as the individualizing the periodization, you know, even stopping them from having a period by continuing the OCP, the, the pill. Um, do you have any comment on those sorts of things? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting, but it's also a pretty complex question. Um, there's some evidence that if you're on hormonal contraception, actually your free testosterone is, is decreased somewhat. Um, but that may not affect uh, strength and power per se. We, there, there's little evidence to suggest that hormonal contraception will decrease strength and power. But I, I did make it pretty clear before that it depends on the formulation of your hormonal contraception. So there are some um, androgenic progestins and anti-androgenic progestins. And they may have a different effect on, on force um, and, and muscle force and power. So that's something to consider. In terms of uh, female athletes with higher circulating testosterone, we've got to remember that physiologically, women have very little circulating testosterone to men. So any small increase in women is still not even in the ballpark of the testosterone that men enjoy. Um, except to say, some women who uh, have a particular type of menstrual dysfunction may have quite a high level of testosterone circulating, still not in the physiological levels of men, but certainly significantly higher than some women. And so there may be, um, there may be some evidence um, to suggest that they can produce more force and power or adapt to resistance type training. But they may also be, um, unfortunately, um, the recipient of some pretty awful premenstrual symptoms, including um, cramping and pain and nausea. And so they'll probably then seek to sort that out, um, you know, medically, which would then uh, change their hormonal profile again. But um, yeah, really, really interesting point. And um, I think a, a lot more can be done in that space. But yeah, just remembering that the, the, the increase in testosterone in women is uh, not even close to, to the physiological levels that men um, have circulating. So it's probably more likely to be a perception of some of those coaches that women who potentially have predominantly type two muscle fibers or the ability to increase muscle mass, um, which is related to their genetics and not necessarily their hormonal profile. Um, and that's what they're really uh, relating back to and suggesting that these women have high testosterone levels, but really it's just a genetic uh, makeup that allows them to increase muscle mass um, and also uh, have predominantly type two muscle fibers that can produce more force. Claire, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we have literally like five minutes with you and I just wanted to jump in and ask, <laughs> ask a quick question. And it, uh, so you'll probably have to, narrow your your um knowledge down to a couple of key points i'm sure but um i just want to quickly touch on red s because um you know this is something that i think you know people are not necessarily aware of um and don't really know some of the signs and symptoms and you know we've talked a lot about the menstrual cycle and i think 
this is where it's sometimes challenging. I spoke to someone recently who she hasn't had a period in years because she's, um, she's on an, an oral contraceptive pill. And so the, that, those signals that we get monthly, which is, it's almost like, you know, as much as we hate to have our period, it's a bit of a signal of how our whole system is going and, and, and it's a bit of a picture of our health. And so to lose that, you know, sometimes athletes struggle to figure out whether or not they are, you know, amenorrheic because they haven't had a period in so long. So I just wanted to quickly touch on rest and just if you had any thoughts about um, how women can, who perhaps who are on an oral contraceptive pill can actually judge their health and, you know, their well-being using other factors or if there's any screening tools you can recommend for the health and fitness professionals just to kind of, I guess, wave the flag and kind of figure out whether or not this is an issue for some people. Yeah, well, it absolutely is, because if you consider that 50% of athletes are on hormonal contraception, that means that they don't have this repeating pattern of fluctuating endogenous estrogen and progestin. And it is such a wonderful tool, um, you know, to judge how our overall health is. It's not just our reproductive health, um, you know, changes to our menstrual cycle um, can be indicative of... Um, you know, other health issues that aren't related to, to reproduction. So that's absolutely an important point. It is a, a wonderful tool. Um, but if for some reason you are on hormonal contraception uh, and 50% of athletes are, so it is normal um, or common, uh, you know, you're really taking that tool away because having a bleed on the inactive days is not having your period. It's a withdrawal bleed that's very different um, to having a, a period after ovulation. Um, and so that's the first consideration is that women need to recognize that having a bleed while taking a hormonal contraception is not indicative of a healthy um, menstrual cycle. So that's important. So then we have to find other ways um, to make sure that we're not in energy deficit. Um, and so I guess this is the premise of Red S in the first place. So originally it was called the Female Athlete Triad because um, it was very much about the menstrual cycle and bone health and estrogen. Um, but because so many athletes are on hormonal contraception and of course there are male athletes who are in energy deficit, we needed to come up with other tools um, to be able to judge uh, whether athletes are in energy deficit or not. So um, whether or not there are tools, but there are certainly physiological indications um, of energy deficit. And some of those are uh, very simple, like fatigue, um, depression and mental health, so mood, um, immune function can change during uh, you know, low energy or periods of low energy. So making sure that we're getting regular checkups at our GP for those types of things. So immune function, mood, fatigue, um, and of course, performance. So I, I would recommend that every athlete, particularly you know, if we're talking about female athletes, um, those on and off the pill need to be um, you know, logging their menstrual cycle on a calendar and overlaying some of those other um, bits of information. What is their mood? What are their fatigue levels like? How are they performing and getting regular checkups from their general practitioner to look at things like immune function? Yeah, no, that's, that's such good information. <laughs> I, I love so much of what we've talked about and I know that we've got to finish. So um, I have the uh, unenviable task of summarizing all the awesomeness that you've, that you've <laughs> us and we would love to have you back to like I'm sure the audience has lots of questions so please um, put your questions in however you are listening to this podcast and uh, we'll make sure that we at least have Claire be able to know what the questions are uh, and see uh, but what I really loved from today in the podcast is that there is such a consideration about uh, the the individual um, I suppose, unique physiology that female athletes have compared to men. And I uh, love that um, you've been leading the charge on this um, in so many different ways and you're involved in um, high-level sport and, and looking at this. So thank you very much for the work that you do. We really do respect 
that, um, you know, looking at muscle damage and how the body responds and adapts, how we can optimize performance through this information, um, and, and also recover and looking at how the immune response is, uh, you know, one, one big brain explosion for me was just then. And that is that, you know, just because you have a bleed while you're on the oral contraceptive pill doesn't mean that you're having the same type of bleed as a regular period. So like, I've never heard that before. I've never been taught that before. Um, so that's going to stick in my brain. That was a powerful moment. Um, and, uh, you know, we even dealt with the, the, the oblique one that I threw in there about testosterone in different women and, um, you know, dealing with that myth and the importance of technique and understanding the cycle, the effect of hormones on your tissues. And what I really did love hearing is the uncertainty. You're very, very careful to say that we just don't know enough that there are indications that seem to suggest that these things are important, but more research is needed. So definitely want to highlight that. And um, I think the practical takeaway that we can give our listeners from all of that is track your training and your mood and your performance and how you're feeling, you know, even that rating scale of, well, how do you feel at the start of training? And, and, and even consider that as part of everything but also track your menstrual cycle. And, you know, I only have one daughter and she hears it from me all the time. Are you tracking? Are you tracking? Are you tracking? Like, so I think that even just tracking so that you have your own individual data from which you can take to somebody and say, look, these are the things that I see, I think sounds like a great start. And um, how have I gone so far on that quick summary? Yeah, that, that was spot on. <laughs> Absolutely excellent. And um, yeah, I think, you know, it, we looked at the science. Uh, we look to our athletes, our best athletes to get their, their opinion. And then we try to, um, you know, we try to implement that in, in every woman in every woman that, that wants to be active. And, and we hope that most do. And so, um, you know, it, menstrual cycle is incredibly positive. It's a, it's a wonderfully positive thing. And if we can use it to um, improve our performance or improve our response to exercise, then fantastic. But um, it's, it's one tool of, of many um, and, it, and it should be used like that rather than a deterrent for exercise. I, I think it should never be a deterrent for exercise and never be a deterrent for, um, you know, Olympic gold medals. And I think, I don't know whether it was you, um, Claire, who said this, or it might've been Helen Collius at Girls Gone Strong. Someone said to me one time, you know, people can get really hung up on the training and training for the menstrual cycle. And you should do this at this period. But the differences that that will make compared to having a good quality sleep, you know, um, having good quality nutrition, getting stress relief, relaxation, all of those things will have a far greater impact on your health and performance than whether you train like this on week one or week two or week three of your of your menstrual cycle. Um, and so I think that's also a key thing to remember is we can get really hung up on the science, but the basics, which we have lots and lots of good quality science around, are probably going to have a far greater impact. Yeah, you're exactly right. You, you, you need to get the basics right. There's no point in looking at one percenters until the basics are absolutely spot on. We've got to um, make sure that our health is at an absolute optimum before we can optimise performance. Um, and so for many women, it's trying to, um, you know, deal with menstrual dysfunction in the first instance rather than training around a menstrual cycle that isn't even normal. Um, so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. For those elite athletes where the basics are spot on and perfect, then we might start to look at how menstrual cycle and or hormonal contraception might affect their performance. But until we get health right, um, I don't think there's much point in talking about performance. Fantastic. Okay. So we'll wrap it up there, um, Claire. Thank you so, so very much for having, for coming on our show. Anthony and I have both just loved it. Uh, we've learned so much from this and I'm sure our listeners will as well. Um, is, if people want to get in touch with you to learn more about your research, um, how, what's the best way people can contact you? 
Best way is on Twitter. Um, you can send me a direct message or um, you can follow me and um, make a comment or whatever you like. Um, I'm also on the Griffith University website um, and would be happy to hear from anyone who has questions. Um, it's been my absolute pleasure to be on here. I'm, I'm thrilled that people are interested in this topic. Oh yeah, we love female athletes. We love all things women's health and we love the fact that um, all this research is going on and um, you know, we would just want to continue to support people like yourself and other researchers who are helping to spread uh, scientific information instead of relying on myths and observations. Like, absolutely love it. So thank you very much. And um, hopefully we uh, hopefully we, we can have you back on again and, and ask more questions. Terrific. I'd love that. Well, that's it for this episode. Be sure to hit like if you enjoyed the episode and leave any comments or questions below. We'd really like to hear from you. If you haven't already hit subscribe, please do so now so that you can be kept notified when we release our next episode. Otherwise, thank you for listening and we look forward to having you back with us for another episode of the Women's Health Podcast.